welcome to the Thankful Homemaker Podcast, a podcast to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in the role God has called us to as women. I'm so thankful you stopped by, so grab yourself a coffee or tea and sit with me a bit as we talk about how God's Word impacts every area of our lives as Christian women. Hello, friend. I'm Marcy Farrell from ThankfulHomemaker.com, and I'm so glad you're here with me today. We are continuing on in this series here together on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and we're working through the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached. So we have covered the first three verses in Matthew 5 up to this point, and we are continuing on working through the Beatitudes or the blessings, which we defined last week or last episode, I should say, as meaning an inner peace or happiness not produced by circumstances, but because you are in a right relationship with God. And from the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this is the reason we are working through this larger passage of scripture together. He said, here is the life to which we are called. And I maintain again, that if only every Christian in the church today were living the Sermon on the Mount, the great revival for which we are praying and longing would already have started. Amazing and astounding things would happen, the world would be shocked, and men and women would be drawn and attracted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, end quote there. So this, my dear friends, in the words of the doctor, is how the Christian is meant to live. And I'm going to periodically remind us of that statement as we work through these chapters together over this long period of time. I am praying the Lord will give us grace to place ourselves under and in obedience to the words of Jesus as he preaches to us the greatest sermon ever preached. My hope is you and I will make much of Jesus. So last episode, episode 87, we worked through Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And R. Kent Hughes, from his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, had such a good rendering of this verse. He stated it as, Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. End quote there. So we were reminded that we can't look at the Lord without truly seeing our utter spiritual bankruptcy before him. We need to be emptied of all of our pride and self-sufficiency. We need to recognize our total depravity, that there is nothing good in and of ourselves. There's only one good, and that is God. And we need to bow before him. And in the words of the hymn writer, cry out, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I think here of another favorite hymn of mine, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen to that. He is sufficient. So the Beatitudes have a purposeful order. And if you take time, read through Matthew chapter 5, at least through verse 12, because as Martin Lloyd-Jones stated, there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one. So it, it all begins with us seeing ourselves as poor in spirit. 
God had no reason to choose us or love us. We were fully in debt, dead in our sin. And as we talked about last episode, we use the term beggarly poor or someone who depends on another to survive. We needed help from an outside source, and that source was Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson said, If you would be rich and possess a kingdom, you must first lose all, including yourself and your self-centeredness, and become poor in spirit. So once we realize that we are poor in spirit and we truly know what it means to mourn over our sin, we will have meekness or humility as we engage with the world around us. We're going to show much mercy to others because we know we have been shown much mercy. We're going to desire purity in our lives as we engage with others and we'll be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. We'll talk about that when we get to that verse, but we will be peacemakers as we become more and more like Christ and we continue to walk in his obedience and to his ways. We will find ourselves more and more persecuted by the lost world around us. It's not an easy road, but there is a great reward for those of us in Christ not too far ahead. So we are now in what looks like to the lost world an upside down kingdom, right? And the Beatitudes walk us through what the kingdom looks like by taking us through these eight blessings. And today we're working through the second blessing. And Matthew 5, 4 tells us, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So if you're just joining us today, I encourage you, if you get time, to listen to the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, that was episode 86, and then episode 87 on the riches of poverty when you get a moment. Not necessary, but I think it would be helpful. And if your budget allows, I'm going to link in the show notes to my favorite resource to work through the Sermon on the Mount next to God's Word, and it's Martin Lloyd-Jones' Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's dig in here. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We live in a world that thrives off pleasure and being happy. It assumes that we're entitled to be happy. I think of the sayings we see on t-shirts and signs. Life is good. Don't worry, be happy. That one makes me think about like Hakuna Matata from Lion King. I think about that. Or as Aristotle stated, even back in that day, happiness depends on ourselves. You don't see any mugs or t-shirts that say, blessed or happy are those who mourn. That probably wouldn't be a real big ticket item seller there. So the mourning our Lord is referring to here is not a mourning over the loss of a loved one or other grief or sorrow caused by a profound loss. There is a time to mourn and weep, as it tells us in Ecclesiastes. But the mourning our Lord is referring to here in this passage is spiritual. It is a spiritual mourning. Just like we talked about, poverty of spirit had nothing to do with our material wealth, Mourning is referring to our spiritual condition before the Lord. This is describing our life as believers in the kingdom of God. Once we come to see and grasp and understand fully by God's grace our poverty of spirit, we will mourn as the Apostle Paul did in Romans seven twenty four and 25. He said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are only able to mourn over our sin as the Lord draws out of our high, draws us out of our high view of self 
and our tendency to be self-focused, and we see God in all his holiness and his great love for us. And the other reminder here, because we tend to talk so much about God's grace, is it's only by his grace that I see my sinfulness and mourn over it. It's only by his grace that changes the attitude of my heart and gives me a proper view of my sin before him. Psalm 130 verses 3 through 4 give us a picture of spiritual mourning. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist is overwhelmed with his sin. Who could stand? He's not just overwhelmed because his sin has been discovered, but that his sin is before God and it grieves him. The psalmist also knows he's in the presence of God and there is forgiveness with God. And God is to be feared. Or another way to state it is for us as believers is God is to be worshiped and served with a loving reverence. So as sinners, we hate our sin. We grieve over our sin because it offends God. We mourn over our sin. Our gracious God forgives our sin and it causes us to mourn all the more that we have offended our Heavenly Father. The God whom we've sinned against is the same God who comforts us in our sinfulness. We are saved by grace and it is God's good grace that reveals our sin and makes us mourn over it. So it is our spiritual poverty that makes us blessed and it is also spiritual mourning which makes us blessed. We are mourning over sin and all its consequences and for the devastation and ruin it causes in our lives and the lives of others. We also mourn here because of the presence of evil in this world, right? God is continually ignored, dishonored, and blasphemed against. We live in a world where the killing of unborn babies is a legal choice for women. We see the breakdown of the family structure. We see the legality of homosexual marriage and so many other sins our society is laden with. Crime, greed, selfishness, and this list can go on. We see the example of Jesus Christ as he was weeping or lamenting over the unbelief of Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, 37, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Isaiah 53, 3 tells us, Jesus, referring to Jesus, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And just a note to point out here that I found interesting in the in Martin Lloyd-Jones' studies in the Sermon on the Mount, he noted that the New Testament makes no mention of Jesus laughing. It speaks of his righteous anger, but not laughter. And this is not an argument against laughter because I'm all for laughter and having fun. I think that's a good gift from the Lord. But God's because God's word being silent doesn't mean that Jesus didn't laugh. But many commentaries I read in preparing for our time together today made mention of this fact. So I was just tossing that one out there for you. So the Apostle Paul mourned over the immortality that was being practiced in the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 12, 21, he said, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. In Philippians 3.18, Paul wept over the enemies of the cross, so he was weeping over those who had not repented and opposed the gospel. 
and we too should weep for the lost. It's a world without hope and a savior, and they are walking in their ways of the father, of their father, the devil. I think about that with, you know, my own lost family and friends. I, in my time of prayer, when I'm crying out to the Lord, I'm weeping for their souls. So even as we walk around as those in obedience to Christ, we may find ourselves mourning because of the persecution we suffer, or maybe our churches suffer, or other believers around the world are suffering. We may even lose friends and family because of the gospel. And two verses come to mind here. Second Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And my reminder, I come back to quite often in my mind, is John 16.33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So truly though, our mourning shouldn't be just over the sins of our nation or the ungodly or over us being persecuted for righteousness sake, but we should find ourselves mourning over the sinfulness of our own hearts. And that's the main point that this text is pointing towards today. We can be really good at pointing out the sins in society or the sins of others around us. I'm raising my hand because I'm guilty here, whether it be those in our own homes or our churches, but it must begin with us seeking to expose and kill the sin in our own hearts. I think that the John Owen quote here, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Mourning over our sin begins with confession. We see our sin for what it is. It's rebellion and disobedience to God. We're spiritually bankrupt. We've sinned and we live in contrast to what God's word calls us to do. True confession of our sin is when we are truly contrite or remorseful and repentant of our sinfulness against God. We have a true desire to change and turn from it. We are agreeing with God that we've broken his laws and deserve hell. Mourning over our sin moves us from just confessing our sin to remembering the fact that at the deepest level of my being, we are a sinner. It's the verse we talked about in Isaiah 6, 5, last episode, woe to me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips or the apostle Paul's sense of utter sinfulness in Romans 7 and the continual struggle with sin. The apostle Paul saw that at the deepest level of his being, he was a sinner, a wretch. And he states in Romans 7, again, those verses 24, 25, who will save me? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We recognize our sin is against God first and foremost. The stories of David and Joseph are both helpful examples of those who love the Lord and desire to please him. When Joseph was caught in a difficult situation with Potiphar's wife, he wasn't concerned about what others would think. His thoughts went first to God. Genesis 39.9 tells us, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Or David, when he sinned in his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered, cries out in Psalm 51 after being confronted with his sinful actions by the prophet Nathan. He said in 51.4, Against you, referring to God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All sin is against God, first and foremost, and this is where we need to acknowledge it first in our own hearts. Pray for God's grace at work in your life to see your sin. Give him thanks for the grace that he has revealed your sin to you and give thanks for the grace he gives to repent of your sin. I heard the term all is grace first from Elizabeth Elliot at some point, and truly it is all of grace. 
And All of Grace is also a great read from Charles Spurgeon. And I think it's a freebie on Amazon Kindle too. So pick that one up if you're a Kindle user. So spend some time in Psalm 51. Friend, just sit there and camp, read it, pray through it, just camp in it for a bit. Maybe it's an area that you need to come back to regularly in your prayer life. Are there areas in your life where you are harboring bitterness or anger towards others? Are there people in your life that you're hard-hearted towards? What are your inward attitudes towards others? We can be really good, and I'm stating this because I'm good at this. We can be really good at faking our outward attitudes, but the Lord sees our hearts. I think sometimes my husband does too at moments because he can tell when I'm not, when things are not right. But the reality is we can be really good at putting on a good face to others. I always think of that Casting Crown song, Happy Plastic People, um, to just put on a masquerade in front of others. And all inside, we're being eaten up with sinful attitudes and thoughts. Even, th- friend, what what are your attitudes towards your husband and your children? What are you wrestling with there? Psalm 51 has been compared to grasping the difference of just confessing our sins to truly being broken and contrite over our sins. Because I'm going to bring us back to the reminder, I'm not responsible for somebody else. I'm responsible for my sin against the Lord and my reactions to others and my thoughts and my attitudes. So no matter what your husband is doing, you're responsible for your response. And I'm not talking abuse here. I'm just talking about when we get in disagreements or you're, you know, you're, you've had some kind of issue and you're harboring bitterness or, or hurts and it may not even be your husband. It could be a friend or somebody at church or a neighbor or a close family member, whatever that may be there. But so it is when we repent and turn from our sin, that true biblical mourning is taking place. And then we have the second part of the verse, which is truly good news, that we shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We worked through the word blessed last episode, and we stated it was from the Greek word makarios, which defines an inner peace or happiness that's not produced by circumstances. So in our walk as believers, there is great joy and freedom in seeking forgiveness for our sin against the Lord. When we come to the place to acknowledge God is right and we're wrong is where we find true blessing. When we're harboring sin, we're not going to be in a good place. There will be no joy, no peace, and no freedom. We will not find freedom from the power of sin if we're not at a point to get honest with the Lord about it. And the reality is he already knows 1 John 1, 9 reminds us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. David Guzik stated on this passage, and he is one of the commentators I pick up sometimes over at Blue Letter Bible when I'm working through a passage, but he stated on this on 1 John 1, 9 that when we confess our sin, we are willing to say and believe the same thing about our sin that God says about it. Jesus' story about the religious man and the sinner who prayed before God illustrated this. The Pharisee bragged about how righteous he was, while the sinner just said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The one who confessed his sin was the one who agreed with God about how bad he was, end quote. So we should be sensitive to our spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord and respond to all levels of sin in our lives, not just what we may consider the, quote, big ones, Right? 
We need to make it right when we've had an argument with our husbands or cross words with a friend, but we need to be conscious of our inward attitudes that are sinful. It could be our attitudes of grumbling or complaining or thinking poorly of others. We could be harboring bitterness or anger or thinking too highly of ourselves. And all sin is an affront against a holy God. And even and especially the inward sins only God sees, we can tend to make too little of our sin. We have come to grips with our total depravity before the Lord. Change comes about in our lives when we get honest with God. Romans 5.20 tells us where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's grace is greater than all our sin. So to see change in our lives and our walk with the Lord, we need to begin by recognizing our utter spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord and continue to be sensitive to all levels of sin in our lives and respond appropriately to them. The word mourn in this text is in the Greek, it's called pentheo, and it means to lament. It's a grief and sorrow caused by a profound loss, especially death. Mourning can reflect an outward expression of sorrow. It's to experience sadness or grief as the result of depressing circumstances or the condition of persons, and to be sad or to grieve, to bewail, to lament. And in the context of this passage we're working through, Jesus is calling for the mourning over our sins and the sins of the world because these sins have brought death. Sinclair Ferguson, from his book, The Sermon the Sermon on the Mount, Kingdom Life in a Fallen World, he states this about biblical mourning. Is Jesus then giving us a word of general encouragement in what he says here, assuring us that sorrow will eventually abate? Is he saying, keep going, it will soon pass, time heals all wounds? That would be far too superficial a reading of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking about life in the kingdom of God. The poverty he describes is in a man's spirit, not his pocket. Similarly, the grief Jesus describes is man's mourning over his sinfulness. It is regret that he has proved a disappointment to the Lord. Numbed by the discovery of his poverty of spirit, he learns to grieve because of it. Here, then, is another characteristic of the Christian. He does not excuse his sin or belittle it or ignore it. As with all spiritual graces, it is possible for us to be deceived about the real nature of this mourning. It is emphatically not to be equated with a heavy and depressed spirit. He continues, he says, some of us by nature are melancholic and sink more easily in our spirits. We become introverted and develop a poor image of ourselves that surfaces in the way we look at or address others, even in the way we hold our heads and walk. He says, but all of these things can be characteristics of a person who is absorbed in himself rather than is poor in spirit. By contrast, the man who genuinely mourns because of his sin has been drawn out of himself to see God in his holiness and grace. It is this, his sight of God, that has made him mourn. And paradoxically, it's the same sight of God that will bring him comfort. The God against whom he has sinned is the one who forgives sinners. End quote there from Mr. Ferguson. So the Greek word Jesus uses here for mourn is in the present tense. So it's speaking of a continual state of mourning. 
Mourning is to be our lifestyle. It's not just a one-time moment when we first came to a recognition of our utter spiritual poverty before the Lord. It is a continual part of our lives as believers. John MacArthur stated that in the Greek, there are nine words that express sorrow, but that of the nine used for sorrow, the one used here, pentheo, is the strongest and most severe. It was the deepest, most heartfelt grief, like the grieving over the death of a loved one. The word describes brokenness over our estrangement by our sin, and and it, it carries the reminder to us of how prone we are to wander. David Brainerd was a missionary to the American Indians, and in his journal entry from October 18, 1740, he grasps here and truly expresses biblical mourning. He said, In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. End quote there. We need to be a people who truly mourn over our sins. What areas do we need to remove from our lives that hinder us from mourning over our sins? Because stony hearts don't mourn. We can get comfortable with our pet sins, those we find ourselves to tend towards. Stony hearts are insensitive to God. Thomas Watson writes that the love of sin makes sin taste sweet, and this sweetness in sin bewitches the heart. So don't delay. Get honest with before the Lord. Ladies, we want to cultivate hearts that are sensitive to the sin in our lives and mourn over them. We want our mourning to be genuine, not just an emotional reaction or because we got caught, but that there's true confession and repentance and genuine mourning. I'm going to share a lengthy quote here from John MacArthur's commentary on Matthew, and he's addressing in this excerpt I'm sharing about how can one know they are mourning as Christ teaches. I really appreciate this text, so I'm just giving it to you in full here. He said, knowing whether or not we have godly mourning is not difficult. First, we need to ask ourselves if we are sensitive to sin. If we laugh at it, take it lightly, or enjoy it, we can be sure we are not mourning over it and are outside the sphere of God's blessing. The godly mourner will have true sorrow for his sins. His first concern is for the harm his sin does to God's glory not the harm its exposure might bring to his own reputation or welfare. If our mourning is godly, we will grieve for the sins of fellow believers and for the sins of the world. We will cry with the psalmist, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep thy law. We will wish with Jeremiah that our heads were fountains of water, that we could have enough tears for weeping. With Ezekiel, we will search out faithful believers who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed around us. We will look out over the community where we live and weep as Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and wept. The second way to determine if we have genuine mourning over sin is to check our sense of God's forgiveness. Have we experienced the release and freedom of knowing our sins are forgiven? Do we have his peace and joy in our life? Can we point to true happiness he has given us in response to our mourning? Do we have the divine comfort he promises to those who have forgiven, cleansed, and purified lives? The godly mourners who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And that his the end of his quote there was from Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. And I'll put that whole quote in the show notes too. 
Spiritual mourning does not begin by looking at the shortcomings of others and pointing our finger. It needs to begin with us, my friend. So how does it begin and how does it continue in our lives? Well, first, we need to see God as who he is laid out in his word. He's perfect. He is holy. Gaze upon the Lord and be reminded against the backdrop of his perfect holiness and the reminder that we fall short and there is nothing good in us. This is where we will begin to see our utter sinfulness. And we will also see the same God is where we find our comfort. Look at the perfect life of Jesus and the reality that for God to forgive one sinner, it required that his wrath was poured out on his perfect son. God is offended by our sin, and the same God who is offended by our sin, still, because of his great love for us and wanting his best for us, lovingly sustains us and gives us the grace to seek it, to seek forgiveness for it, and to repent and to turn from it. It is against him that we sin. Spend some time of your prayer, as we stated earlier in Psalm 51. Let me read verses 3 through 4 to you. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Thomas Watson shares, David, that he might be a mourner, kept his eye full upon sin. See what sin is, and then tell me if there will not be enough in it to draw forth tears. End quote there of Thomas Watson's. He's got a great book on the Sermon on the Mount, too, and it's a pretty cheap one on Kindle to pick up. I always come back to preaching the gospel to ourselves, and you know this if you spend any time here with me, because this is a point where we're reminded we were enemies of God, we were under his wrath, we were dead in our sin, and we could do nothing to change our own hearts. It is a work only the Lord can do in and through us. We are spiritually dead, and he grants us new life in Christ. Take responsibility for your sin. Don't get caught in the trap of comparing yourself to others and thinking, I'm not so bad. True spiritual mourning addresses our sins in particular. Jesus died for our sin. We talked about praying through the Ten Commandments in the last episode, and that's a really good place to start. Be aware of the sins in your life, things like self-centeredness, our words, our thought life, our neglect of doing the right thing, our greed, our pride, our arrogance, our neglect of the spiritual disciplines. Thomas Watson said, a wicked man will say he is a sinner, but a child of God says, I have done this evil. Own it. Own your sin before the Lord. And that's where there's true freedom. True spiritual mourning produces a hatred for our sin and a repented heart that desires to be in a right relationship with the Lord. We should desire to be holy as God is holy. And poverty of spirit goes hand in hand with biblical mourning. Mr. Watson said again, true mourning begins in the love of God and ends in the hatred of sin. Thomas Watson also has an excellent treatise on mourning, and I will link that in my main show notes over at the blog at thankfulhomemaker.com that if you get time, it'd be a great one to sit with. There's comfort for mourners, right? Because when our verse continued, it said, Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who live life with a contrite heart that is mournful over sin, it is they who shall be comforted. Not everyone who mourns over their sin will be comforted. It is reserved for those in Christ. 1 Corinthians 7.10 tells us, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Our comfort comes here and now. It is not just in the future. 
God is near to the brokenhearted. And the Greek word for comfort here is parakaleo. And it means to literally call, I love this, literally to call to one side and refers to the act of calling someone to one side in order to help them. It's in the passive voice. So it's speaking of the subject receiving comfort from a source outside himself. Ladies, God himself is our comforter. And he calls us as mourners over our sin to himself, and he speaks words of pardon of our sin and eternal life into our hearts. The noun form of the Greek word for comforter is transalve. I sound like I'm speaking French or something. That's not how it's pronounced, but it's spelled T-R-A-N-S-A-L-V-E-T. And the apostle John uses this term to speak of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus. In John 14, 16, he uses it when he states, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. The Holy Spirit is our comforter and our helper forever. He undertakes Christ's office in the world while our Lord Jesus is not in the world as the God-man in bodily form. The Holy Spirit ministers to us in our spiritual life. And Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, reminds us that God's comfort is relational. It comes in the form of his divine companionship. He is our ally. He personally binds up our sorrows and consoles us. How how comprehensive our comfort is. It is immediate. It comes to us alone. It comes personally in the person of the Holy Spirit, and it is based on the forgiveness of our sins. That is why we are called blessed. What it, he continues here, what a stupendous paradox. Jesus stands truth on its head to get our attention. And he says, would you be comforted? Then mourn. Would you be happy? Then weep. Only when a person mourns and weeps over his or her own sinfulness will that person be comforted by the only comforter who can relieve their spiritual distress. To those who mourn, God grants pardon, forgiveness, deliverance, strength, and reassurance. Jesus Christ, with his own precious blood, has fully satisfied all our sins and delivered us from all the power of evil. You can either sweep your sins under the rug or you can put them under the blood. The choice is yours, beloved. And Hughes asks, he says, have you experienced that in your life? I'm asking you that and I'm asking myself that right here, friend. Have you been flat on your face before God mourning over your sins and failures and found him to come and place his hand on your shoulder and deep within your soul, you know his peace that passes all understanding. If you are carrying a deep burden of sin and you sense that grief, even to the point that is beyond you to carry, drop it at the feet of Jesus and receive his pardon and grace. He speaks to the soul with pardon and release and assurance that all your sins are under his blood. The saddest thing in life is not a sorrowing heart, but a heart that is incapable of grief over sin, for it is without grace. I want to repeat that again. The saddest thing is the saddest thing in life is not a sorrowing heart, but a heart that is incapable of grief over sin, for it is without grace. I don't want to be without grace, neither do you. He continues. Without poverty of spirit, no one enters the kingdom of God. Likewise, without its emotional counterpart, grief over sin, no one receives the comfort and forgiveness of salvation. For Christians, mourning over sin is essential to spiritual health. It is significant that the first of Martin Luther's famous 95 theses states that the entire life is to be one of continuous repentance and contrition. It was this attitude in the Apostle Paul that caused him to affirm well along in his into his Christian life, 
that he was the chief of sinners. End quote there. And again, that was from R. Kent Hughes from his Sermon on the Mount, The Message of the Kingdom. So I want to close our time today with just a little short read from our, an, an our Daily Bread devotional. It was called Let the Tears Flow. So I'm going to begin it here. It isn't good to brood about our sins, nor to lament constantly over our shortcomings, but neither should we take them too lightly. To disobey the moral law of a holy God is a serious thing. Although as Christians we bask in the warm glow of divine forgiveness, we must never minimize the awful reality of sin. So a young pastor visited Dundee, Scotland shortly after Robert Murray McShane died at the young age of 30. Many people had come to Christ because of McShane's ministry, and the visitor wanted to know the secret of his great influence. The old sexton of McShane's church led the preacher into the rectory and showed him some of McShane's books lying on a table. Then he motioned to the chair the evangelist had used, and he said, sit down and put your elbows on the table. The visitor obeyed. Now put your head in your hands. The visitor complied. Now let the tears flow. That's what McShane did. Next, he led him into the church, and he said, Put your elbows on the pulpit, and the visitor did. Now, put your face in your hands. The visitor obeyed. Now, let the tears flow. That's what McShane used to do. So, Robert Murray McShane, ladies, he cried freely over his sins and over those of his people. By contrast, our emotions are often hardened towards sin, we need to be more sensitive to the convicting voice of God's Spirit and more determined to live a separate life. We may rejoice in God's forgiveness, but we should never be afraid to mourn for our sins. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. True joy, happiness, and contentment in our lives will come when we deal with our sin before the Lord, when we sorrow over our sin and turn from it and run to God for genuine forgiveness is the only place where we will find lasting joy, my friend. So run with tears into the everlasting arms of the Lord because Jesus is enough always. I'm so grateful for your time with me today. I know this was a long one and they may be a little longer. There's just so much to cover. Um, it could have been a lot longer. <laughs> so I pray that you'll head towards a couple resources in the show notes to further your study on biblical mourning. Again, I talked about Thomas Watson's treatise on mourning was a good one. And also, if you have time, John MacArthur's sermon called, um, I think it's called The Only Way to Happiness is to Mourn Over Sin or something like that. But I'll link to it in the main show notes over at the blog. I pray if you get a moment and you're enjoying the podcast that you'd leave a rating or review wherever you listen in or on iTunes would be lovely. I'd love that and so appreciate it. And I'm so grateful for each and every one of you that has taken time to do that. So many people have found the podcast because of you and I'm grateful for that. I will be back with you on November 10th and we'll be working through Matthew 5.5 at that time. This is a really good one. I'm, I'm pretty far into the working through it now. It's blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. It's a hard one. It's a hard one, um, but it's good. So again, I'm grateful for you, my friend, being here with me. I pray the Lord will continue to grow us in his grace and knowledge that we will become more and more like Jesus and we will make much of him. I pray you have a very blessed week. Mm-hmm.